Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I welcome Beth Rose Middleton Manning onto the program. Professor Middleton is the department chair of UCD's Native American Studies Department. She's also the author of the books Upstream, Trust Lands, and Power on the Feather River, as well as Trust and Land, New Directions in Tribal Conservation. She has her BA degree in Nature and Cultural Studies from UCD, as well as a PhD in Environmental Studies from UC Berkeley. Throughout her career, she has blended environmental sciences, education, and indigenous cultural studies. Beth Rose and I discuss her early days blending these subjects, her work in cultural burnings, her current work in African and indigenous intersections in the Americas, and more. Now here's my conversation with Professor Middleton. Um, so, you know, just I'd like to start off by checking in with you and how has your, your life as a home educator been in this very odd time we're currently experiencing? It's been challenging. Let's just <laughs> start there. Um, uh, on the plus side, it's been really nice having my son home um, and being able to know what he's doing in school. On the challenging side, it's really difficult to balance teaching from home, uh, hosting meetings from home, holding office hours from home with also homeschooling in the other room. In fact, it feels slightly impossible, but we are doing our best. I think also I'm about to shift for the first time to teaching fully asynchronously because I have my large class coming up in winter with about 150 students and there's no way to do that synchronously. I've already had students emailing me from where they are around the world asking uh, the format of the class. So I know I'm going to have to start pre-recording lectures and developing weekly quizzes. So it almost feels like a new prep, even though I've taught this class probably 10, 12 times. So it's it's a challenge. It's an adjustment. Um, I like the family time, but I'm struggling with the work-life balance. Now, do you see a, a potential maybe benefit from doing it in this new sort of way where you can not really stylize it, but make it more of a, a production in being able to pre-record stuff? I really like that idea. I just don't have a lot of experience with it. Mm. So I need to explore the Keep Teaching website and other resources to see what I can learn from what other faculty are doing. It's just something that, you know, we haven't been taught how to do. So it's a new it's a new adventure. I will say my graduate classes have, for the most part, been growing really well. I've tried some new... Um, approaches to putting students in small groups and having them read selections and then work together to develop study guides so they do some of the work outside of our class period. And then when we come together, I think everybody is prepared for discussion. And because they're grad students, they are, you know, really wanting to discuss the reading. So I have enjoyed the two grad classes I've taught now um, remotely, but I have done those synchronously as small group discussions with work outside. Um, I think the freshman seminar has also gone okay, but it's not great because freshmen don't really like to show their faces. I only have maybe two in that class of about 12 or so that uh, that show their screen so, and, and that speak. So that's a little harder. And, and I know from working with you that a lot of what you well, I don't know if it's a lot of what you do, but part of what you do involves actually taking your students out into nature and showing them stuff with, you know, the culture burnings and uh, perhaps other things I'm not aware of. How have you adapted with with that in this time? Well, I would say one example could be the Maidu Summit Consortium, which is a 
organization that I've partnered with for a number of years, they had a, a work day doing um, restoration on some land that's recently been restored to Maidu stewardship. And I wanted to bring a group of about four or five students. One has independently, you know, developed through my introductions, but then really grown herself a relationship with the organization. So she was able to, you know, she's been up there more than I have recently and spent time with the community and help with the project. So that's really terrific. But the others ended up not all not being able to come. Um, one of the issues was carpooling. Some of these students, you know, don't have cars and due to COVID, uh, nobody is, is carpooling. So uh, that's that was unfortunate, but that was not a formal activity. That was more of a, you know, a collaboration, doing work together on the land. It wasn't a class activity. I just had my class approved, my Keepers of the Flame class that I teach with two graduate students, Melinda Adams and Denise Martinez. That was just approved for winter. So we will theoretically be able to do a few field trips and burns. Um, it depends on our collaborators uh, at the Tending and Gathering Garden, the Weavers Committee, and down at North Fork Mono, whether or not they feel comfortable coming out and, and what is safe for them. We always want to be sure that you know, the elders and the teachers take the lead with what they're comfortable with. And we have our protocols for social distancing and keeping everybody apart. I think it's a little easier outside because you're out in these open, very rural areas. People can easily be well-spaced while they're listening and working with the plants. Uh, and I know one of our collaborators there definitely wants to move forward. So I hope that will happen. It's a, it's a real uh, dance, I think. You know, on the one hand, I feel like we do have the potential to do outside restoration projects and work on the land. On the other, I, I worry about being as safe as possible. Possible, making sure to protect our collaborators as well as our students and ourselves. Uh, you've become pretty associated with the culture burnings through your Keepers of the Flame course and just sort of, you know, being who you are to the point where I heard you pop up on NPR some months ago. Um, how did you first become aware of this practice and like your experiences with it? Hmm. I think um, as an undergrad, I guess, when I was a McNair scholar, Kat Anderson, who is an ethnoecologist, was my mentor. And she wrote the book, um, Tending the Wild, as well as many articles that really showcase Native California land stewardship, Native Californian knowledge of plants and of taking care of land using all different sorts of techniques, including burning. So I initially really learned from her when I was an undergrad at UC Davis and she took me out and introduced me to people in the community, uh, particularly Mountain Maidu people. And I think also around that time or after I graduated, I came to know about the Tending and Gathering Garden at the Cache Creek Nature Preserve. That was probably a little bit later, uh, which, you know, that it's traditionally stewarded. Also, when I was in um, college, I had a, or graduate school, sorry, I had a fellowship, a Ford Community Forestry Fellowship. And there were two others who had the fellowship also, who were uh, Don Hankins and um, Frank Lake, both of whom are, are leaders in that field. And so I was able to listen and learn, learn about the work they were doing, which were some really amazing um, experimental designs. Uh, again, like looking at the importance, the efficacy of traditional burning. So that's how I, I came to learn about it. And so when I was teaching California Indian Environmental Policy, NAS 161, that was that's one of my classes. I have a unit on burning, the importance of traditional cultural burning. And so in 2018, I, I, I have a ongoing friendship with Ron Good, with North Fork Mono, the, the tribal chairman there. 
uh, the Honorable Mr. Good. I'd met him back in maybe 2009 with the planning for the Tribal Water Summit. Anyway, so I had been in touch with him over the years and I reached out to him and we developed the idea for doing a weekend field trip with the students uh, in which he would teach them about burning and he regularly does these burns and showcases their their techniques and land stewardship at some family property in Mariposa. So in 2018 was the first time I took the class there and uh, Chris Adlam, who's one of my advisees in ecology, he just graduated. Congratulations, Chris. Um, he came and assisted with the class and then he said to me afterwards, that was amazing. We need to have a separate class completely on burning. And I said, wow, that sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> but really terrific. So he really took the lead in organizing the Keepers of the Flame class. And uh, and so for the next two years, and this will be the third year, uh, we've been able to offer this class. I've now put it into ICMS to make it be a formal a formal class, but it's just, it's really interesting. We, we have... Um, have speakers zoom in usually or sometimes come in person almost every week in the class there's dialogue with the students uh, the speakers have been very generous with their time we've also fundraised to be sure we can provide honoraria and uh, they are from many different cultures in california and even beyond but mostly california and talk about the the specific specificities of applying cultural burning and also some of the challenges policy-wise uh, policy of being able to conduct burning on the landscape, uh, but the importance of burning in the community for the health of the land and the people and cultural survival. So it's very moving class and the field trips are really a highlight. And last year we were able to spend almost, almost every weekend for at least a day or a few hours uh, out at the um, tending and gathering garden at the Cash Creek Nature Preserve. So I feel like we got to kind of build a relationship with that place and with the weavers, with Diana Almanderas, uh, Pam Gonzalez, Ardith Reed, and others on the tending and gathering garden steering committee. Zach Emerson, one of our graduates, works there now as a restoration projects manager. So we got to, you know, us and the students got to be part of taking care of, prepping, stewarding the plants prior to the burn, during the burn, and then after the burn. So that was a really nice, you know, engagement with the place. So hopefully we can do some of that this year. We just got to see how it goes with COVID. Uh, you mentioned uh, like some pushback with policy and, and doing this. Have you experienced more of that over the last few years in the wake of so many California wildfires? Like, has that come into play with what you're trying to educate and you have to, like, remind people that those aren't related or are they related? I'm very ignorant to this. Please help yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. So they they are related because of the lack of stewardship of the forests. Uh, I'm part of this group right now with the Climate Adaptation Science Center where we're trying to make some sort of definitive statement on the role of climate change in, you know, leading to these huge conflagrations, these major destructive wildfires throughout the West, because it's definitely, there's a few factors going on. You know, one is, one is climate change, uh, increasing aridity, et cetera. But other factors include lack of land stewardship, you know, not, not thinning, not underburning, not maintaining the health of, of the forest. You know, people talk about the, his, the historical ecological condition where you had widely spaced trees, you had, you know, a, 
streams spreading out over the landscape, whereas now you see dense forests, a lot of underbrush, very dry, you know, down cutting and erosion in creeks, so a lowered water table. So a lot of factors that could lead to catastrophic fire. So they are related in that, you know, when when indigenous people were forced to stop burning um, around the turn of the century and that that suppression of fire, you know, was really intense throughout the 20th century, that you see a decline in condition in the forests. So bringing back the burning is really important. And I think, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that varies. Yes, public fear of fire is huge, but I've seen so much media just this last year after, you know, some of the hugest fires happening in the state of California that story after story, really, that is saying, what about turning to indigenous methods of fire management? What about cultural use of fire? You know, there are different types of fire. We can avoid catastrophic wildfire if we support cultural burning, if we should support low-intensity repeated stewardship, you know, low-intensity burns, repeated forest stewardship. So it's interesting to see that shift in public opinion. I think, though, there are uh, several factors. One has to do with air quality, uh, air quality regulations, particularly in the Central Valley. It can be difficult to get permits to burn. Um, I feel like some people have probably been creative in forming relationships with air quality management agencies in order to foreground that cultural burning is, is different, that it's necessary for land stewardship. But I think it's still an issue because we have air quality problems already. So uh, I think people are starting to see, though, that if we can take steps to avoid catastrophic fire, which is when we have the worst air quality imaginable, as we saw a couple of years ago here in the Valley and even this last summer, if we can take steps to avoid that, that might mean a little smoke at certain times of year when people are doing cultural burning or burning to increase the health of the forest to avoid large-scale um, conflagration. So I, I'm seeing a little more attention to that. I think, though, there's a lot of fear of fire. You know, a lot of people have homes in, in areas that are prone to burn or even areas that we wouldn't think were prone to burn, like um, more urban urbanized areas, such as have burned in the last few years. And so there's there needs to be a lot of education. I know the Fire Safe Councils are working hard, but Part of it is education to local landowners to thin their land, um, you know, to maybe learn about doing prescribed burning, which is different than cultural burning, uh, so that they are prepared and that their their lands are protected, you know, if a large wildfire were to start. So there are so many moving pieces. There's all the federal land. There's private land. Um, and I know that up north, like Bill Tripp is a well-known leader in cultural burning at the Karuk tribe, uh, head of the Natural Resources Department there. I know he has expressed frustration before with having the funding to do cultural burning, but then hitting various roadblocks that are, you know, have to do with regulatory and policy issues. And he's best to talk about that. But... Uh, but sometimes that is only to say that sometimes you can even have the, the money, the personnel be ready to go and hit various roadblocks, even though you know the land needs to be burned. Now, as you talk about this, I'm, I'm seeing a clear link in um, things that you've studied and what you do. But when I was first reading through the degrees you've gotten in your education, I thought there was sort of a disconnect, at least on paper, between environmental science and your you know, you're the, currently the chair of the Native American Studies Department, but I, as you speak about them, I see how they are connected. As you were going through your education, when did you realize they were connected, and how did, 
what was your plan to keep them together as you went through your career? Mm, what a great question. So I always wanted to do something that had to do with uh, land and science and people and identity and culture. So when I was an undergraduate, I was a, a Native American, I'm sorry, I wasn't an NAS major, I was a nature and culture major, which was this interesting major in which, you know, we took like the beginning chemistry courses and bio courses, as well as uh, literature courses. And we had these wonderful field courses where we were, some. we spent some time at McLaughlin Reserve. We also were down in, in um, Baja, California, in the Sea of Cortez, you know, that we're all about both ecology and people, community, culture. So it was a really interesting major. And then when I went to to apply to graduate school, I was also looking for these programs that, that were similarly interdisciplinary. So I, I applied to Berkeley's Environmental Science Policy and Management, Society and Environment, and Yale's uh, I think it's something similar, forests and people sort of thing. And then there was a similar one at Montana. And I decided on Berkeley, um, they gave me, you know, good support. And I didn't want to leave California. I really never wanted to leave California. So um, it was, I always wanted to work at those intersections. And then when I was a McNair scholar at Davis, it was really great being prepared being paired with Kat Anderson, who really did have a big influence on my life. And uh, I really appreciated her method of foregrounding, listening to people, respecting people, respecting their knowledge. I didn't see a whole lot of scientists doing that at the time. I think that has changed. Now I see a lot more scientists, um, you know, fire scientists, plant scientists, uh, reflecting on and acknowledging and respecting the the knowledge and leadership of indigenous people. But at that time, Kat was one of the few who I think was really doing that. And so I was grateful to work with her and for her, um, the introductions that she made for me in uh, the Mountain Maidu community in particular. So I'll, after that point, really my work came to really focus on Northeastern California and Mountain Maidu uh, land issues. It just seemed really egregious to me that people weren't aware of how of how their lands had been taken and they had never received any restitution. I know, you know, more now that this is unfortunately like a very common story across the world, really. Um, but I wanted to do something about it because it was here in, in my home state and I felt like I could raise awareness so that people, you know, maybe could contribute to supporting restitution of Maidu lands as well as other native California lands that had been seized for hydro development and timber harvest. And, you know, people were getting, had been getting wealthy over the last century on the extraction of, of timber and water from their homelands with nothing going back to people there. So I, um, you know, really became focused on the injustice of that. So my work also incorporates uh, legal aspects. When I was at Berkeley, I took uh, several classes in federal Indian law, um, both just on campus and at the law school. So that, that's how I came to develop the um, federal Indian law class in the NAS department. Yeah. Um, and then looking forward, your bio on the NAS website, which I'm not sure how up-to-date it is, uh, it says you're currently working with grad students in NAS Ecology and Culture Studies on a few projects, but the one that stood out to me is one that I am 
probably the least familiar with, or at least in concept, is creating curriculum on African and indigenous intersections in the Americas, quote unquote Mm. there. Um, Could you expand on what that is exactly and how that work is currently going? Oh, thank you for asking. So this is kind of a new area for me because much of my work is focused on land, environment, natural resources, policy, um, access issues, legal issues to to foreground Indigenous stewardship. But this is a really wonderful work. It's more personal for me. It because my father's family is Afro-Caribbean from Belize, Honduras, and Jamaica. So I've always been interested in in that part of my family history and their pathways uh, coming coming north into California in particular and some of the things that they they went through in their experiences in in the Caribbean. So back in 2012, I attended a Afro-Indigenous conference at um, York University in Toronto, and I was presenting on some work I am just now getting to publish with a colleague in Georgia about the legal frameworks that enabled de facto slavery of California Indigenous people in after statehood in the late 19th century and how those were similar to the legal frameworks that enabled forced unpaid labor effectively slavery in the south post-emancipation so we're looking at both the laws but also the people so it's been really interesting seeing that like the first governor of california burnett who was a really terrible guy he was from the south and had also been exposed to some of these um, structures that he brought to california so we've been tracing some of that history anyway so i went to this conference to present about that work but my book trust in the land about um tribal use of conservation easements and development of native land trusts had just come out. So I I brought the book with me and I just kind of mentioned it as an aside, but there was uh, some representatives from a Garifuna group there and Garifuna are black Caribs uh, from St. Vincent and the Grenadines who were forcibly removed across the Caribbean to Rohatan, which is an island off the coast of Honduras. Uh, And so I met representatives from that group and they were very, very interested in the application of conservation easements and thinking about how they could use them to protect uh, cultural sites in culturally important places to Garifuna or Black Carib people in the Caribbean. So they invited me to speak at their conference in St. Vincent. And I I went, I took my son uh, when he was 10 months old, uh, as well as my mom and my stepmom. We all went to St. Vincent back in 2012. And and that led to building a relationship with folks with this International Garifuna Heritage Foundation. And I published a paper about opportunities for using easements, uh, given their similar heritage of British common law, similar to the US. So that was all interesting and we maintained communication. And over the course of our communication, I kind of got more interested in, well, what what could I do as a teaching initiative? Because Native American Studies is a hemispheric department, but we have no coverage of the Caribbean at this time. And I hired a couple students. I had a small amount of money. And I had them do a survey uh, around the U.S. and Canada and the Caribbean looking for courses on the indigenous Caribbean. And there was very, very little, just a few courses uh, that maybe had a unit on indigenous history in the Caribbean, often only historically focused this presumption that there were no indigenous Caribbean people left, which is not true. 
and then maybe one course in Canada with a scholar up in Toronto that was focused on Indigenous Caribbean history. So I thought, wow, this is a really interesting area that we could grow. So I did get a grant from Global Affairs last year. And among our goals are to kind of increase the relationship between UC Davis and University of the West Indies uh, and really grow this course to, um, to speak about the Indigenous Caribbean and Afro-Indigenous interactions in the Caribbean over time. So my student in NAS, Vivian Muller, as well as a collaborator in cultural studies, uh, Jasmine Wade, who's also a PhD student, have been, you know, over the last year or so, putting together reading lists, uh, developing draft curriculum for what we hope to offer as a course. I keep kind of pushing it, pushing it out with the pandemic, but probably in 2022. I hope spring 2022. And so right now as a pilot, we're offering a freshman seminar. And it's been really terrific. In a way, the distance learning has not been so bad because we've been able to have uh, Zoila Ellis-Brown, who is my colleague with the Griffin Heritage Foundation in St. Vincent. She Skyped in a few times, given just absolutely incredible lectures about Indigenous history in the Caribbean, about um, African history, Afro-Indigenous history, uh, the case for reparations. So, so interesting. I've loved what we've been able to learn about Haiti and Jamaica and, and other islands um, and their histories in this course. So it's a great beginning, I think. You know, we had much bigger plans of having her come and be the first uh, Griffin, a scholar in residence for this quarter at UC Davis. Of course, we were not able to do that, but at least we can have engagement over uh, remote learning. And hopefully in the future, uh, she will be able to come and we'll be able to really build this exchange with University of the West Indies. There's only currently one class in the UC Education Abroad program that goes to the Caribbean. I believe it goes to Barbados, if I'm remembering correctly. It's not at UC Davis. It's in the UC-wide uh, Education Abroad opportunities. So I'm just hoping in the future that, you know, there there could be an opportunity for education abroad, but also more of an exchange, more of a collaborative or service learning component. When Jasmine, uh, my collaborator, went to St. Vincent a couple of years ago, you know, she did a survey with people there asking them what they would find useful in a course, what they wanted American students to learn about them, and also what they would like to learn, what they would like to get out of it. So we hope to do something that's that's positive for them as well, that they're getting something out of. I've, that to me is like a cornerstone of all of my work, that there is that exchange and there's mutual benefit. Of course. Well, I know you've got to step out pretty soon. Uh, thank you for talking to me today. Um, this has been very eye-opening and a lot of a lot of fun. Um, it's I enjoy connecting the names that I see come through on paperwork with people that you've mentioned. So I was like, oh, I know Zoila. Cool. <laughs> um, so, uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before before we call this episode an episode? I just really appreciate you doing this, and I look forward to listening um, and learning more about what our colleagues in the building are doing you know especially in this time of remote we don't get to see each other we don't pass each other in the hall we don't get to catch up on on uh, what's going on in each of our our lives and our work so i look forward to hearing about what other people are doing and making this a forum of connection even even though we're not in heart hall right now yeah so me too. thank you of course.